0: It's a delight to worship with you this morning. We continue our worship by opening God's Word, listening as He speaks to us. From Hebrews chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Moving to verse 23. Moving to verse 11 of chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. My laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is indeed the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We've been purified. So if we've been purified, why are you here? If you're not accomplishing anything in a cultic or religious sense, like there's no no transaction happening in corporate worship, why are you here? The writer stresses with, with a flourish stresses so strongly the once and for all of the work of Christ. He's he's quoting Psalm 40. He's referencing um, Psalm 2, I believe. He's quoting Jeremiah 31 so clearly that Jesus purifies us, and that's done, one, once. And in Hebrews is such a phenomenally interesting book, quotes the Old Testament more than probably any other with the exception of Revelation. And yet the point that he's making is, is relatively simple. And I think the application of the book of Hebrews is almost so mundane that we wouldn't, we wouldn't naturally believe it if we weren't paying attention to the book, and I'll get to that in a minute. The part that I didn't read from Hebrews chapter 9 is about uh, the most holy place. I'm looking now at at chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail kind of sounds detailed but that's his sermonic style of writing Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But the text that we already read says there is a sacrifice that purifies and, uh, that purifies our conscience. Isn't that what we want? Don't we long for our consciences to be at rest? If this is true, what the writer of Hebrews details about the New Covenant, it changes everything. It means that we trust God, not so that. We obey God, not so that he will. We worship, not to gain his affection, but because. Instead of if we do this religious thing, we receive it's because of what he did we receive and chapters 9 and 10 live in this beautiful tension of the reality of earth the reality of the eschatological promise because when when the writer talks about an eternal promise he's talking about not just in this life and not just in heaven but when jesus makes his enemies a footstool that's a reference to his return utilizing the language of the psalms all of it is different The claim here that Jesus' work is entirely complete with the one time through his, his work means that all of our actions towards God are a response of love. They're because, not if. Confession, I think, is the most poignant version of this because confession is a gift if all of this is true. We're not to feel guilty, before, during, or after, because of what a gift it is, and because his work is completed. So then, back to my question, why are we here if we've been purified? We long to be formed. We long to continue to be formed by the songs that we sing, that our heads and our emotions and our very being would be full of the truth, We long through confession to learn to confess joyfully because that's what it means to be a human, is to confess to God and neighbor. That's part of the process by which we are matured. In chapter 10, verse 14, there's that that word, sanctify. And it might sound like a churchy word to you. It's such an important word because we've been purified and we are being sanctified. So when we show up, that's what's happening. We're being sanctified formed. Why? To serve. And that's the truth that is that seems odd to the world, and yet for Christians, it's freedom. If God exists, and we are the creatures made in His image, the way that we worship, or the, that, what that, uh, back up. If God exists, then creatures worship Him by acting the way that they are built to act. So a dog responds by acting like a dog but we're the creatures made in his image which means we get to choose what to worship therefore it's an act of freedom and joy to worship if he exists otherwise we choose a slavery to self what that actually looks like is learning to serve one another you see it in chapter 9 verse 15 why why do we do this to serve Jesus purifies, and he mediates, and that's a less cultic word, right? A more uh, a word we're more familiar with. I don't know if you've ever needed a mediator in your life. I couldn't shake the image um, from my childhood. My parents uh, divorced when I was just born, and I lived with my mom until I was eight. But when I was dad, or when I was five, my dad married another woman. She had three lovely kids already, and then they had another child. When I was eight, I moved in with them. And when I was nine, my mom moved away. And I remember when I was 12, and when I was 15, I did not know what to do. What happened, what changed was someone told me when I was 12, and I don't even know if this is true. Someone told me when I was 12, it was up to me to decide who I lived with. And the conversation when I was eight had gone well. But when I was 12, I felt differently about it. And here's the reason. There was no clear answer. There was no clear, if you do this, you'll be happy, because I loved my brother and sister that had moved away. And I loved my brothers and sisters that I was now living with. And I loved my mom, and I loved my dad and my stepmom. I didn't know what to do. I needed a mediator. I told one sister, a couple of friends, they were absolutely no help. And how much more eternal is the problem that Jesus mediates? Perhaps you've experienced something far worse than that situation. You needed a mediator and there wasn't one. Jesus steps into a situation where um, we have a religious opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins, but it will not clear our conscience. So through the law, through the laws given in Exodus and Leviticus, the people were cleansed through seven different kinds of sin and um, thanksgiving offerings and... all all sorts of things, some referenced in Hebrews, and it's a long list. Jesus comes into that situation where God was showing people um, what the writer of Hebrews calls, um, what does he call them? Copies. They had copies to help them understand God's heart for them, and Jesus comes in and offers an infinitely, eternally better solution which is himself. And it's something that we receive and daily. It's something that secures us if we are to leave, if we are to die before Jesus returns. And it's something that we will enjoy after his return, when work will no longer be cursed, when the earth will no longer be under the curse, if we but receive his mediation for us. read the beginning of, um, or I read the middle of chapter 9, then I went back to the beginning. Now I'm going to read verses 16 through 23, talking about Jesus as mediator. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Still true today. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. A writer of Hebrews is talking to people who are very familiar with the sacrificial system, and he's explaining it in what would seem to us like a long way, but this would be shorthand for them. When he says the law is given to Moses, that's over 600 laws, Mm -hmm. to show how temporary those were. Those were provisional at best. He goes to specific, rhetorically interesting pains to say in that system the best that happens is you feel a little bit better and then you're increasingly weighed down throughout the course of the year until we go back to the Day of Atonement. And so while that is what they had and it was provision, it doesn't even compare to receiving the work of Christ by faith. Even though they were provisional, they cannot cleanse the conscience, right? Religious actions can never cleanse our conscience, but receiving the work of Christ once and for all done, finished to Jesus' jesus 's last word it is finished here the writer of Hebrews in verse twelve once in verse twenty six uh, contrasting it with repeatedly almost Aggressive negative language, and then switching to once. He says, he, but at, he has appeared once. Verse 27, man dies once. And then verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once, it means it's finished. This it changes everything about how we approach religion through Christ. Verse 12 and verse 24 of chapter 9 say that Christ entered our world. And he, the, the whole tone of this chapter and the next chapter are ones of solidarity. So he's not only explaining that Jesus purifies and that Jesus mediates, but Jesus can relate. He's already gone to, to pains to talk about this. He has experienced, from a feeling standpoint, what we have experienced. And is God. Therefore, purified us and mediates. Though we wait. Listen again to chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because it's already dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And by saving there, it's not talking about saving salvation, that's already accomplished. Saving into the with God life that will... Overflow the world and roll back the curse. But here's my question. I'm going to read verse 28 again, because I kind of jumped around talking about it. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So where are we? We're after the been offered once, and we're before will appear a second time, right? And you're like... I. This is the most obvious, basic Christian point ever. Yes, but the New Testament brings it up over and over and over and over again to encourage us to persevere, specifically to continue loving one another. Eagerly waiting Jesus does not mean eager to escape this world. The scriptures never teach that heaven is the point. I know that sometimes you long for heaven with an incredible amount of curse fatigue. You are so sick of injustice and violence and death and disease and dying and how incredibly capable people are at hurting one another. So you long to be released from that, and you will be. What the writer of Hebrews is talking about in terms of eagerly await is we eagerly continue to follow him we're grieved at the effects of the curse. We're willing to take up our work in light of Christ's specifically to learn to love one another. The writer's going to talk about the uh, the law in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So obedience can't make you perfect or me. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 3 is saying, the law by itself not only can't heal you or cleanse you but it will it will be increasingly feel oppressive to you picking up in verse 5 consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body have you prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come to do your will o god as it is written of me in the scroll of life in the scroll of the book this is amazing The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which is what he's quoting, is actually Jesus talking to God about the new covenant. Very cool that the Holy Spirit revealed that to the writer of Hebrews. He wrote it down, and then we get to read it. Picking up in verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And you're like, I get it, I get it, I get it once. Better than the law as a savior. But we act like we prefer the temporary provision. We believe in instinctive ways and in intellectual ways that religious activity merits something before God. Instead of doing the the more challenging work, but the more joyful work of receiving and responding. All religious activity is worthless with respect to cleansing your conscience because it has no power. But in light of Jesus purifying and coming before us, putting the law in its proper place, the law is not gone, it's fulfilled. The law is now part of the structure that is faith in Christ that guides us. But it cannot save. There is no efficacy with respect to changing God's mind about you with any religious activity. And what, is it, that's actually supposed to be a relief to us. Then when we worship, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to mature us as worshipers and as those who care for one another. The law is part of the building and is far more beautiful because now we know the the law can't save. So what's it actually for? It guides us in the with God life. Uh, the, The reformers, and specifically John Calvin, would summarize it this way. The purpose of the law shows us our need, God's holiness, and the joyful life that's available to us because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have an an, an eternal inheritance. Chapter 9, verse uh, 15. Verse 10 is a description of it. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Chapter 9, verse 28 talks about the sacrificial... uh, (laughs) Jesus is an offering of himself and that we're waiting eagerly What is our eternal inheritance? Our eternal inheritance today is the joy and the peace and the guide to life, which is the law right now. Our eternal inheritance also includes heaven, where our perspective will be widened and we will understand more of God's purposes, though not all of them, because we will still be limited creatures in heaven. Our eternal inheritance is also the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus has made a footstool for his enemies. It is a rich and ever-present inheritance. And so what do we do? We receive the work of Christ and we walk. That's our role. What I find so amazing about chapter 9 and 10 and really the whole book of Hebrews is, I think he's really interested in church attendance. I was thinking this morning, what would it be like if we got to sit with the writer of Hebrews, and maybe the writer of Revelation is the only other writer I know that's as concerned with church attendance. And we explained how, not, not you, you're all amazing, but others don't prioritize it. How would we explain that to them? Like, look at the energy he, he puts into explaining how much greater the new covenant is than the old. And we would talk about our priorities. And specifically, what concerns him is not simply attendance in corporate worship, which sounds so anemic. Unless all of this is true. And then this is where we come to be formed by the work of Jesus Christ. I think it would be comical for me. I went to an aquarium last week in Boston. We're in this together with my daughter. You know? And part of that's because I needed a break from church because I work here, right? But it's also because I just slip away from, how do I want to say this? I forget the incredible, immense power and beauty of the eternal inheritance given to me by Christ. When we receive this, when we understand in trusting faith the difference between the way of Jesus, which is one of receiving and then walking in light of, it changes everything. You take a command about how spouses are to treat one another with love and respect. If we're doing that not because it gives us favor with God, but because we have received his favor because of Jesus, it frees our conscience to learn to love and respect unconditionally. The commands about children free us to love our child well, not to control them or worry so much about their behavior as as long for them to grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord, how we treat our extended relatives and those we work with, our neighbors. The commands of God are light and life. If the work of Jesus Christ is once and never can be or need to be, is, never does not need to be repeated. We're generous with what we have, not to curry favor, but because we have received favor. And we know that our time and resources and finances and gifts in the church and outside of the church, but the writer of Hebrews talking in the church, are actually incredibly powerful. Chapter 9, verse 28, and chapter 10, verse 13 talk about waiting. It's a very important Christian practice to eagerly wait for Christ's second return and in the meantime not miss opportunities to love. Hopefully later this week, but perhaps the week after that, we'll know the outcome of the election. And the writer of Hebrews would not understand our disunity over this at all. But after we attempted to explain that, and he either laughed or groaned at our explanation, then he would say, do not miss the opportunity to serve someone else in the bride of Christ. And he would say that that opportunity in the kingdom is infinitely more important and powerful in the makeup of our politics. Chapter 10, verse 14 says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have been perfected. When God looks at us, he sees the work of Christ and receives us. But we are still being sanctified and grown up in love for him and for one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe and trust in the work of your Son. And we ask that you change our minds and motivations, our instincts and our thoughts from duty to delight. From religiousness to freedom. As you strengthen us in the sacrament, Holy Spirit, give us clear eyes to see and know what you're doing, maturing us, sanctifying us in this very moment. Tend to our fears and anxieties, our anger. Dash our idols and help us then to return to love for you and those we have the incredible privilege of worshiping with. Amen.